7. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent, and he will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. You guys may be seated. So if you'd like to be finding your way there to Psalm 27, we're going to be continuing in our series uh, entitled Worship. We get to see how Psalm 27 is a entire psalm about worship. Specifically, we're going to see how it's in uh, worship in regards to fear specifically this morning. Uh, because the truth of the matter is we all have fears, don't we? Some of you guys are afraid of public speaking, doing what I'm doing right now, because some of you guys to break out in, in hives. Um, but all of us have fears. When we were children, some of our fears were really juvenile, right? Had, we had fears that we were afraid of the dark. We had fears that there was a monster underneath our bed. But the truth of the matter is uh, we grew older and our fears changed, but the roots remain the same. We've exchanged the fear of the dark for the fear of the unknown, the fear of the unknown of how we're going to handle life circumstances as they come at us with finances or jobs or career paths or the well-being of our family. We're afraid of the unknown. We've exchanged the fear for the monster underneath our bed for the fear of the unknown of protection in our life, that we're afraid to be alone with that monster underneath our bed. We just exchanged that for the fear of being alone relationally whether having someone else in our life that to, to share our burdens with. Some of us have exchanged those fears of the protection for the fear of the protection of our loved ones or even ourselves, that we can't protect our loved ones from car wrecks and disease and ultimately death. We can't. We're all afraid. 
We're truthfully fearful people. And we'll get to see that Psalm 27, as we look at it this morning, is truthfully the antidote for our worried, sick souls. But before we look to Psalm 27, let me stop and ask the Lord for help this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that we can sing it, that we can come into your courts this morning with praise. God, I feel inadequate as I approach your word this morning. God, as I know we approach the subject of your holiness and the fear of you, this reverent awe fear, I pray that you would give me wisdom and discernment for your flock that as we study your word, that we get to see you high and lifted up, and we get to see because of who you are, we can worship you in a reverent, worshipful fear. I pray for the removal of distractions. I pray for open hearts to your gospel. I pray for a renewed mind, that we would set our mind on you and not on the things around us in these next couple of moments. I pray that your gospel would be the one thing that we seek this morning. I pray that your word that is active and alive and that your spirit that applies this truth would apply it to the children in this room. God, we love you, but thank you for first loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we dive into the text this morning, uh, we've already mentioned this fear of the Lord. So let's see where this comes from in the text together. So if we're looking at verse one, David starts by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So we get to see immediately in the text this morning, David is boasting, whom shall I fear? You don't say that question. You don't ask that question if you don't have confidence of whom shall I fear. But now, why is David boasting? He's boasting because we get to see there in verse 1 that the Lord is his light, his salvation, his stronghold of his very life. Because of the Lord's greatness, because of how big God is, how holy God is, how majestic God is, that David is not afraid. So this morning, that is the question we're going to ask of the text, the very one that David is asking at the outset of this psalm. Whom shall I fear? And I want to give us that answer immediately as we look at this text, because I, I believe that if we get this right, if we get this right in this opening verse, the rest of Psalm 27 opens up to us in a beautiful picture of fearful, awe-filled worship of the Lord. Whom shall I fear? The Lord. Now, I know at the outset of this, that might um, cause some of us to be a little uh, uneasy when we use that word, fear of the Lord. I know most of the time when we use that word fear, it, it has to do with fright-filled uh, mind pictures of the monster underneath your bed or afraid of the dark. But as Bailey said at the outset of this, it is a beautiful thing. And I think that if we get this right, that's why we get to see that there's worship that follows. Because oftentimes we've heard this, whom shall I fear, as a battle cry. We've heard it as a shout of victory. Whom shall I fear? I don't have anything to be afraid of. 
And that brings hope to our hearts. And yes, amen, that is good. But what I'm here to tell you that if we stop there, we miss miss out on the richness that follows and the beauty that follows as we fear the Lord, as all scripture commands us to. Because I would argue that the rest of this psalm is David's worship out of that fear of the Lord. But I think it's important that we clarify those terms. I think that's always an important thing to do. Any conversation, anytime you enter in anything is to clarify terms. So let's clarify. When we say fear of the Lord, let's give a working definition of what we're saying this morning. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon can say it much better than I ever could. So we're going to look at this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He says this when it comes to the fear of the Lord. But dear friends, there is another fear that ought to be cultivated, the reverential fear which the holy angels feel when they worship God and behold his glory, that gracious fear which makes them veil their faces with their wings as they adore the majesty on high. There is also the loving fear which every true, right-hearted child has towards its father, a fear of grieving so tender a parent, a proper fear of dread which makes it watch its every footstep lest, in the slightest degree, it should deviate from the path of absolute obedience. May God graciously grant to us much of this kind of fear. This is the type of fear that we're talking about, a gracious fear, a loving fear, a reverential fear, a fear that we could grieve such a loving parent that we have if we are indeed children of the King. So, I don't want you just to think that this is Spurgeon, this is me saying this, this is me maybe reading into this. Uh, let's go to scripture here. Let me, I feel like there may be some of us in the room that need a little bit more convincing of this. So what does the Bible have to say about this? So I'm going to fly through some of these. We can have some of these references on the screen for you. But let's see this in the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is all throughout scripture. Proverbs 9:10. the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Nehemiah 1.11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. How about Proverbs 28.14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Isaiah 11.3 is a prophecy of the coming Messiah of Christ. It it says of the Messiah Jesus that he uh, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So that's Old Testament. What about David, right? We're reading a Psalm of David. What does David have to say about this fear of the Lord? Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. We can already start to see the goodness of the Lord in this fear, that the fear of the Lord is not this bad thing, that it is a thing that is reverential, that the Lord has goodness stored up for those that fear him. Psalm 115, 13, he would say, he will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Now, I know that's a lot of scripture we're throwing at you right here. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page before we really dive down into this, because Jesus himself says this. This is not just any place in scripture, but Jesus, as he walked this earth, encouraged us in this fear of the Lord. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So you see the gravity of the holiness of God, the fear that we should have as we approach him, not 
as a fearful, trembling convict awaiting sentence. But if we are indeed children of God, we still approach God in a rightful manner. Now, we've seen that this is what we are to do, but why? Why do we approach God in this way? We just sang this in Psalm 27 over and over again. Holy, holy God Almighty. The reason we approach our Savior, our God, in this manner is because He is holy. He is set apart. He is perfect. And unless we see that we approach God in nothing but self-righteousness and filthy rags, we will not see the goodness of God and his set-apartness. The reason why we need to approach our God in a reverential fear, in a, in a, uh, just in an absolute, worshipful, broken manner, is because he is so set-apart. This is why Christ had to come. This is why Christ came for us because we were broken and we can never measure up to this holiness that God demands. This is why the angels, even in the presence of God, shield their face in his presence. This is why God himself is a consuming fire. When Moses asked to see his face, he said, you can't see my face and live, but you can see my hind parts as I pass by. Church, we have got to have a right view of God in order to have a right view of ourselves, and that is that we are broken, depraved, in need of a righteous, holy Savior. And that man was Jesus Christ, who was truly man and truly God, and came and lived and died in order that you could be redeemed. This is the holiness that we approach. We don't approach him in a flippant manner. He is so set apart. He is so different. He is so much greater than you can ever grasp. But still, he is tender as a parent. He still lovingly leads, as we saw in Psalm 23 last week. But don't, don't make a mistake in thinking that he is not fiercely holy. This is why we must approach him in this manner. It's why in verse 1, when David says that the Lord is his stronghold, only God can be that stronghold for your life. A stronghold is a place that when people were afraid in battle, when the enemies were surrounding them, they would run to a stronghold. They would run to the one place that they thought was secure. They would run to the one place they thought the enemy could not reach them. And hallelujah, praise God if you're a child of the king, that you have a stronghold in Christ. But we can't stop there because, as we said, this fear of the Lord makes us to take it one step further we have nothing to fear if we're in Christ, save for Christ. Why? Because the enemies outside of those gates of the stronghold are nothing compared to the fear of the Lord we should have of the stronghold itself. Because you see that Christ himself is our refuge, but the very one that when we run to we should have just as much reverential fear and awe for. So I ask you, when you run to a stronghold, what is your stronghold you run to? Because when you are afraid, where you run to reveals what your God is. If you are afraid and you run to security of a relationship, that relationship is your functional God. 
when you are afraid and you run to an image on a screen, that image on your screen is the comfort of your functional God. When you are afraid and you do all these coping mechanisms of shopping or going, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, you go and play golf, you watch ESPN, you watch sports, whatever it is you're doing to distract yourself from the fear that you have in your heart is your functional God. And I would encourage you that the fear of the Lord is a warm blanket, is a soft pillow to lay your head on, He is so holy that those enemies outside your gate, the things that you're afraid of, compare nothing to the fierceness and the consuming power of the Lord. Because you see that we, as the church, we're the dwelling place of that very God. He resides in us. The Holy Spirit is sent. Very God of God, knit up in your bones to lead you not into a stronghold that is flimsy and that will fall. And when the day of trial comes, it will collapse on your head and killing you. I'm asking you to kill that weak, flimsy stronghold before it kills you. You have the spirit that is enabling you to do so. So when we have this reverential fear of the Lord, this is the heart of worship. We said this this morning in our time of communion, when we approach the Lord with this reverential fear and see how high and lifted up he is and how low we should be and how much we have to be grateful for, the natural birth out of that is worship, is seeing how holy God is. Where will we be without him? He is our strong tower. He is our stronghold. He's the one we run to. But we can't lose sight that we can also reverentially fear the Lord as we do so. So as we continue down into this, like I said, I believe if we look at this psalm through that vantage point, we get to see that the rest of this psalm is simply an overflow. Because we fear the Lord, of whom shall I fear the Lord, this is just the natural implications of what happened after that. So the next thing we get to see in verses 2 and 3 is because we fear the Lord, that we should fear no enemy. Verse two starts by saying, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. You see that David, because he fears the Lord, is not fearing any enemy whatsoever Because he is fearing the Lord, the Lord is so much greater, so much more powerful, so much more of his reverent worship because he believes the Lord is going to come through. He fears the Lord, not his enemies. That's why he says the fear of the Lord causes him to believe his enemies will stumble and fall. He doesn't believe his enemies will prevail over him because he believes in the goodness of the Lord. He sees God high and lifted up, that his relationship with the Lord has been about sweetness in this fear, not bitterness. As he fears the Lord, David is not afraid that his enemies will conquer him because he's experienced such a sweet relationship with the Lord. You see that despite the enemies prevailing against him and the camping around him and war arising around him, he's trusting in the Lord. So I know we mentioned this in parts last week about who our enemies are. So you may be asking yourself this question, who are my enemies? When we're talking about enemies at my gate, 
Who are these enemies that we're going to be stumbling and following? Yes, at parts we said, we mentioned that those that are inside the church that are seeking to pervert the true nature of the gospel that is Christ and Christ alone crucified for our sin. Yes, it's those that are outside the church that are hostile towards the gospel. But what I would argue primarily comes from Ephesians 6.12 is that primarily our enemy is Satan and his forces. Because Paul would say in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That our true and one enemy is the enemy of the cross, it's the enemy of our souls, the one who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. It is Satan. It is the one who seeks to pervert the true gospel. It's the one who is blinding the mind of the unbelievers. It's the one that's causing the gospel to be foolishness to those who are perishing. It's the one that is leading away the children of wrath. This is the enemy of your soul if you're indeed in Christ, but you have no reason to fear, just as David had no reason to fear. So we ask the question, whom shall I fear? We fear the Lord. We do not fear any enemy, so I fear no enemy. Isaiah 35, 4 would say it this way, say to those who have an anxious heart, here's that fear, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This is a prophecy of Christ, that our enemies are the ones that are seeking to drag us away from the Father, but this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, Christ, who came, the one who did come with vengeance, to the one that will come again with vengeance, of the martyrs who are crying out to the Father now, how long, how long, till you come and you come and you bring your vengeance for our spilt blood. This is the God that we serve. Christ came and died in your stead. You fear no enemy. That's why we continue in Psalm 3, 6 through 7, when David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Sin, the enemy, was conquered on the cross. The enemy of your soul is defeated. That's why you don't walk around with a limp if you are in Christ. You walk around with your head held high, not because you are righteous, but the righteous one was slain for you and broke the teeth of the enemy. That's why one day when we reach eternity, that's why we'll be able to look at death and say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? It is swallowed up in victory of the cross. Stand firm, Christian. This is your victorious battle cry. You fear no enemy. Why? Because the enemies that are assailing you, like the enemies that were assailing David in verse 2, the ones that are chasing you, the enemy that is chasing after you, the one that's causing you to stumble and fall, Christ made that enemy a footstool. He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The very enemy of your soul is a resting place for the king of kings for his feet when he is tired. What do you have to be afraid of? Nothing save for the one that can make the greatest of enemies a footstool. Rest in that fear of the Lord. Because if the enemy is a footstool for us, 
Christ is the one who's made it. If you're hiding safe in Christ, if he is your refuge, you have no enemy to be afraid of. That's why we as the church have no enemy to be afraid of. That's why Christ says to Peter that you are my church and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. That we, this broken mosaic knit together only by the saving work of the cross is the hope of the world. How could we as the church still exist if not for Christ's victorious work? How often even in our own lives do we grumble and dispute amongst one another, even in this room as close as we are, as much as we love one another? Let's just take it outside of this room. What about even outside of here? What about all the different churches in this area? What about all the different ministries? How often do you hear backstabbing or nay-naying? The gospel is so much bigger than the Branch Church Milledgeville. The gospel is so much bigger than any church in Milledgeville. The gospel is so much bigger than any church in the United States. The gospel is bigger than the time frame we live in. Christ exists outside of time. The universal church, the saints of old, are all together around the throne now, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let us take our eyes above the fray and set our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and see that we are the church, that we go when we push back darkness because the Spirit is knit up in us and giving us the power to do so. What motivates us to do this? The fear of the Lord. As Spurgeon said, that we would grieve such a tender parent. When he has called us into mission, the great commission to go and make disciples, the last thing we want to do is grieve his heart by looking inwardly and backstabbing, and arguing, even amongst this fellowship here. The gospel was so much bigger than your preferences. The gospel is so much bigger than your hurt feelings. I know that's not fun to hear, but the gospel is so much more important. And I love you enough to tell you. Because you see, this series that we're studying on worship, when we go out and we're victorious and we conquer and we have enemies that are made our footstool, this is our victorious battle cry. This is what we're doing when we worship through song. We're singing out to the Lord, you have saved me. I was broken. I'm a wretch. You have conquered my enemies. You have conquered sin. The chains of the sin of slavery weigh me down no more. Bless your name. I worship your holy name. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you because where would I be without your cross? This is why we can worship because we have a conquering king. So the question I have to ask for some of us in this room is, do you have that security in the stronghold? Do you have that security in the one who has made your enemies a footstool? Are you trembling now, feeling at any moment that you could fall? Are you trembling now, even in the presence of a holy, perfect God, afraid that he's going to smite you? For those of us that are in Christ, you have no reason to be afraid of the wrath because it was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. 
but I ask you to ponder and consider and ask whether the fear in your heart is a Holy Spirit-given fear because you have every reason to fear if you're not in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you have an enemy of your soul that is holding you captive. But even more fearful is to fall into the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards were to say. If you're not in Christ, you have every reason to fear him. But there is good news. There is a Christ, a Savior. Trust in him. Repent from trusting in yourself. And he will give you that faith to believe. Because you see, we don't just fear no enemy. We also get to seek the Lord. Verses four through six, we get to see how David, because he fears the Lord, he there seeks the Lord. It's not a fear that causes him to run away, but it's a fear that causes him to draw close. Verse four starts by saying, one thing I have asked of the Lord, and like any good pastor, the one thing that he asks is actually three. And the things that he says and that he'll seek, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And why does he do that? Verse five starts by saying, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So David's fear of the Lord here doesn't lead him uh, to seek out the Lord in some religious obligation. So if you're afraid of the Lord and you're coming in this room because you're, you're afraid that if you don't go to church, God's going to be mad at you, I'm, I'm here to tell you that's that's. Pharisee mindset, that's legalism, that's you drawing close to God because you're afraid that he's going to hurt you and you're hoping that in some way that God's not going to curse you or cause something bad to happen to you, so you just try to draw close to him. That's not what scripture teaches us. We draw close to our Father in a reverent fear, in a loving fear, knowing that he is good and he is gracious to his children. We seek the Lord in this manner. As we get to see in verse 4, the only thing that David seeks, above even the comfort of his own home, remember, David's probably writing this in the wilderness. He's probably not in his palace. He's not having any of the comfort of life. He may not even have his wife with him. So the one thing that David is seeking is the presence of the Lord. It's true reverence of the Lord. So why do we say that this is the presence of the Lord? Verse 4, when he's saying that he'll seek after, that he'll dwell in the house of the Lord. It's where uh, in the wilderness, in the Old Testament, when they would move the tabernacle, the very presence of the Lord dwelled there. That to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We know that David can't gaze upon the Lord's face. No one can. So when he's saying the beauty of the Lord, what he is saying is the temple there. Because what he is saying is he's going to gaze upon the beauty of the of the architect that is revealed in the architecture of the temple. That when he goes to look at the temple, he sees God's presence, his manifest glory, because God gave the specific instructions for how the tabernacle was to be built. As he continues to say that he will cover me in the shelter of his tent. 
and to inquire at the tail end of verse 4 and to inquire in his temple. So we get to see that there's this threefold relationship here of David saying the I will, I will, I will, and then we get to see that there's a threefold relationship of, in verse 5 of what the Lord will do. So David says, I will gaze on his beauty. I'm asking to see the uh, Lord in his temple and inquire in his temple. In verse 5, he says, for he will hide me in his shelter. That's the first one. Number two, he says that he will conceal me. Number three, that he will lift me up. Verse 6, we get to see what we will do, what David will do. I will worship. How does he worship? I will worship through offering sacrifices. I will worship through singing. I will worship through making melody. We get to see that the proper response to the Lord is worship because David's one desire, the one thing he's seeking after is to be in the presence of the Lord for he knows the Lord will protect him. He will conceal him. He will lift him high and place his feet on a solid rock. That's why David worships. That's why we are to worship the Lord. So whom shall I fear? The Lord. So since we fear the Lord, so what is the one thing that I seek? I seek Christ. The one thing that we should seek in this room is Christ. As David sought the presence of the Lord in the temple, we get to see that Christ is the fulfillment. He is the better temple, that Christ himself is where we get to dwell that Christ himself came, lived the life that we couldn't, died the death we deserved, rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is sitting there to make intercession for us, but has sent his spirit. And we are called the living temple of God now as believers in Christ. So this is the thing we seek after. That's why Psalm 34, 4 would say, I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. In Luke 8, 23 through 25, we get to see a perfect example of how the disciples sought the Lord. Specifically in a time of fear. Verse 23 starts by saying, And as they sailed, he fell asleep, he meaning Christ. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling the and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water that they obey him. Don't miss that part. After the storm had ceased, after the storm had ceased, the disciples were afraid. What were they afraid of? This afraid is no longer of a perishing, of this apprehension of something bad about to happen, of them going down with the ship. This fear is this reverential fear of the Lord, the reverential fear of the one who can rebuke the winds and the waves and they obey him. What power is this? What majesty is this? What holiness is this that Christ can speak and creation obey? 
I don't know how many of you guys have ever tried to speak something into existence. It's not possible. So why this name it, claim it garbage that is creeping up within most of the church is just not biblical. The one who speaks today is the one who spoke through Jesus Christ. That's why we hold fast to his word. Because he spoke us into existence. He existed as the word before it became flesh. That's why we get to see that Christ himself is the one that we seek shelter in. Christ himself is the one that we look to dwell in that tent with, that Christ himself is the rock, that Christ is the one that is our sure, firm foundation. So what is your shelter you look to? What is it that you uh, supplant the God of the universe in his rightful place, remove him from his throne, and thrust on that throne? for your shelter? What is it that you could possibly think that can stand up to the trials that are facing you in your life? Financial insecurity, relational distress, schoolwork, business. You've been married for five minutes, you know that trials come. I'm here to tell you, you may not understand this now. You may not have ever experienced what uh, many theologians call the dark day of the soul, where you feel as if though you're an olive in a wine press being pressed and pressed and pressed and the life is being squeezed out of you. But I'm here to tell you that is how the beauty of what we have of olive oil comes is through that pressing process. And I pray as your pastor, the Lord would be gracious enough to put you in that season where you must be pressed and where your shelter of whatever you're hiding underneath is tested. And I pray that it falls down that you may see that the only sure shelter of your life is Christ. Anything else is fleeting. Anything else. That's why Christ in parables, when he talks about going to build our house, where must we build it? We must build it on the solid rock. Everything else is sinking sand. It will fall apart. What is that rock you must build your life on? What is the shelter you must hide in? What is the temple? It is saved nothing but Christ and Christ alone. In your life here, in your life of fear, the only thing that is a salve, the only thing that is a bomb, the only thing that is going to bring you true relief, the only thing that is going to hold up when the storms come is Christ. Are you in him? Are you trusting him? Is your righteousness in him? Is he your morning glory? Is he putting a new song in your mouth? Is he the reason that you can sing aloud? Is he the reason when you're in fellowship that when people ask you how you are doing, you can be honest and say, I am not doing well, but I have a savior, so it is well with my soul. Are you open? Are you honest with your brokenness because you had a savior that was broken for you? Where is your shelter. Why is it not Christ? Hide yourself in him. Seek his presence. Because as we said that this is not a scary fear. This is not a fear that we have to run from, but it's one we nestle up to and encouraged. But I would ask you, if you have not trusted Christ, for your righteousness, if you cannot say that you know he died in your stead, what keeps you from seeking his face right now? Whether you're here in this room or on podcast, 
seek his face. He, if you can, he will give you that faith to believe that he is good and that you can draw forward toward him in reverential fear. Seek him because he's not just far off and distant, he cares. That's why we get to see in verses seven through 12, because we fear the Lord, we cry out to the Lord. Verse seven starts by saying, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. David starts there in verse 7 by crying aloud to the Lord. David's fear of the Lord and seeing how the Lord has answered in his reverential approach has caused him to cry aloud even more because he knows that he is a faithful father that hears the cries of his children. That's why it's led him to prayerfully cry out because you don't approach a holy, sovereign God of the universe and give him a to-do list like David just did. He gave him nine things. Yes, he's asking and prayerfully, but if, even if you look at some of the verbiage there, he says, hear, Lord. He's not asking the Lord. He's telling the Lord. Not that we have the ability to do that, but what confidence must he have in approaching this holy, fearful, all-consuming God if he's giving him this list to do. Because you see, God is our refuge and our rest, and we come to him, but we don't come to him and into his presence and kick off our shoes and relax. We come to him as Moses came to him in the wilderness, and we don't come to him for just rest, but we come to him in worship as we remove our shoes for it is holy ground that we step on. All that being true, David still asks of the Lord in this intimacy. Verses seven, he asks for the Lord to hear him, to be gracious to him, and to answer him. Why? Verse eight, because I obeyed, Lord, because I had this reverential fear, because when you said to seek my face, what did I do? I sought your face. David had this reverential fear of the Lord that he did not want to grieve his father by disobeying any command of the Lord. When the Lord told him to do it, he gratefully did it. Verses nine, you see three more things that David asked of the Lord. Don't hide from me, don't turn from me, don't abandon me. Verse 10, why? Don't be like my earthly parents. I don't know how many of us in this room have broken or fragmented relationships with family members. And when we hear those verses, crying out to our Heavenly Father to hear me, be gracious to me, answer me, don't hide from me, don't turn away from me, don't abandon me, don't be like my earthly parents. I know a lot of this is mixed up in the emotions 
of having broken shadows in parents of the true Father. But may this be an encouragement to your soul. May this be encouragement that you do have a heavenly Father that hears and cares, that he hears you, that he is gracious. He does answer you. He doesn't hide from you. There's no place you can go. As David says, even if you make your bed and shoal there, there he is. The Lord doesn't turn away from you. He doesn't abandon you. He's there, and he cares. Even in all of his holiness and set-apartness, he calls his children unto himself. As Jesus said as he walked the earth, don't prevent the little children from coming to me. He cares. But David continues in verse 11 by saying, teach me and lead me. Don't deliver me over to my enemies. Why? For they seek to destroy me. This is a crying out. This is a worshipful prayer. This is a son crying out to his father, asking him to provide. So whom shall I fear? The Lord. So whom do I cry aloud to? Christ. We see this all over scripture that when we are afraid, we're called to cry out to our Savior. Psalm 31, 22, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But when you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy, when I cried out to you for help. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their fears. I don't know about you, for so long I would read promises like that in that beginning clause, when the righteous cry for help, I immediately felt disqualified. And let me encourage you, in your own flesh, you are disqualified. You have no righteousness save for Christ. But if you are indeed in Christ, he is your righteousness. Therefore, this promise applies. If you are a child of God, he is your righteousness. So when you cry, even though it may feel like your prayers are hitting a ceiling, even though it may feel like the same breathless prayer that you've prayed over and over and over and over again, you have a sovereign, holy, set-apart God that cares intimately for you. But the biggest prayer that we must all cry out for in a thankful, reverential fear is crying aloud to the Lord, thanking him for our justification, our, our, making, uh, our being made right in Christ. Because you see that David has this confidence only because of Christ. The only way we should be confident in approaching a holy God is because of Christ making us righteous. Trust in that. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I believe that fear has muffled the cry I have to my Father. But I promise you there's not one whimper of your soul that doesn't catch the ear of your Father. As a good earthly father cares about even the slightest noise of his child, how much more if your earthly father knows how to do good things and give you good gifts, how much more your heavenly Father? You have a Father that cares. He doesn't just dismiss you. Even if your fears are simply that, anxieties, irrational, he doesn't cast you off. He doesn't abandon you. It's my prayer that we as a church, we collectively cry aloud.
for our Father. Not only just for our needs. Yes, that's good. But it's my prayer that we would approach him in a reverential fear. That we would cry out in repentance. That we would be honest in our missional communities. We'd be honest in our DNAs. That when we fall short, we would reach out to a brother and sister in Christ and tell them that is worship. That is confession saying that you realize that the perfection of God has covered even that depth of sin. I pray that if the Spirit is impressing on your heart and you have never cried aloud, that today would be that day that you would not depend on your own self-worth, your own self-effort, your own self-righteousness, how strong you are, that despite what people have told you, there's nothing better than laying down all of your burdens and trusting in the perfection of Christ. I pray that if you have not cried out and asked him to save, that ye would do it. Because all we have to do from here when we fear the Lord, is wait. When we see how holy he is and we fear no enemy and when we seek his presence and we cry aloud to him, what else is there for us to do but wait? That's why David ends this psalm in verses 13 through 14 saying, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Why is David saying wait? What fear of the Lord is causing him to say wait? What is it about this Savior that he has such confidence that's causing him to say wait? Beginning of verse 13 when he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord that God indeed is good, that God indeed has your best interest at heart, that God indeed knows your entire situation. He knows your fears, and he is working them together sovereignly for your good and his glory. Even the enemies that prevail you, whether it be uh, circumstances here on earth or in the spiritual realm of the enemy, even they or under the sovereign control of God that he is using because he is good. Because we get to see in verse 14, as we see, we pick up there in verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. We get to see that this is covenantal language. Covenantal language, if we look back all the way to Deuteronomy 31, 7 through 8, as the Israelites are entering into the promised land, he makes a covenant, an agreement with the people. And this is what he says. This is going to sound familiar to us. Verse 7, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to the fathers to give to them and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. You see what emphasis that Moses puts on the sovereignty of God. He will lead you. He will deliver you. Don't be afraid. 
All you must do is wait. If the Lord makes a promise, he's not shorthanded to deliver on that promise. The promise that we as the children of God have is that Christ is enough. He is sufficient. You rest in that. You wait in that. And you be strong in that. That's our role to play in that. You don't shrink back in timidity. As Paul encouraged Timothy, for the, the, the Lord has given us the spirit of power and love and self-control, not of timidity. We don't shrink back from that. But be encouraged that we're not alone in this, that it's not up to just us, that God is indeed sovereign. That's why I love in verse 14 when he says, let your heart take courage. He changes some of that language there from Deuteronomy from where we must be courageous to he's saying, let your heart take courage. The Lord is seeking to encourage you in this fear, in this fight. The Lord has given you brothers and sisters in this room to encourage you. That's why he's gifted some of you with the spiritual gift of encouragement. You have a brother and sister that's maybe coming to mind even now. You know when you're downtrodden. You know when you're downcast. You know when you're anxious that you go to them. They are going to have an encouraging word. They see the glass is half full always, and they will come with the right message at the right time that comes from the right hand of God, encouraging his beleaguered saint. God provides even in this fellowship. Trust and rest in that. So whom shall we fear? Save for the Lord. So whom do I wait for? The Lord, Christ. Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Again, we walk uprightly only because of him, and he gives because he is good. That's why we wait however long it takes however long we're in the valley. As Bailey said two, three weeks ago, that this entire life may be that valley of Baca. We wait because the Lord is good. Lamentations 3.25 from a book that's called Lamentations, a place you would think there'd be nothing but sorrow coming from. Verse 25 says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Even in our deepest sorrows, even in our fears, we have a good God that we wait for because we indeed now are in the land of the living. I love that, that David in verse 13 says that he sees that he shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I know what an encouragement that was to me this week is oftentimes I think my only encouragement is gonna come in Christ. As we came through this study of Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain, sometimes, sometimes it feels as if though our only goodness in this life is only going to come at the finish line. Right? And some of that, that may be. But David has confidence that he'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I look at your faces and I see the goodness of the Lord in this fellowship. I look at my wife and see the goodness of the Lord. I look at this city and see the goodness of the Lord in his saints and that we can go into this community, that we can live on mission, that we can advance the gospel. I see the goodness of the Lord as people in our fellowship are saved. I see the goodness of the Lord every time someone is baptized. I see the goodness in the Lord and his grace to me, that although I am sinful and broken and a wretch, and I sin and fall short every single day and every time, 
the Lord is gracious and rich and abounding in loving kindness to me. Is that not your story as well, friend? The Lord is good to you. He has dealt bountifully with you. Although he would be just in casting you aside and turning you over to your depraved mind and giving you over to the desires of your heart that is anything but him. He is good and he is merciful. He's good in sending his son. He's good that we have the spirit, that he's not left us as orphans, but we have the Holy Spirit knit up in us to lead us into truth and encouragement. That we'll see God's provision even today. We can. That's why we worship at times, not just for uh, who God is and his holiness and the fear that we should rightfully have, but also of how he has provided in his son and will continue to provide as we wait for him because Christ indeed is coming again. In all of his power, in all of his glory, the, the clouds will peel back like a scroll. The trumpet of God will sound. The dead in Christ will rise again. We will be caught up together with the Lord and we will dwell with the Lord all the days of our life. This is a true, sure promise from Scripture. If that is not encouraging to your heart at the goodness of the Lord, I don't know what can be. But I pray that you would trust in his goodness alone, not your own, because you have none. I pray that if you come into this room or listen to this podcast and think that religion or God or Christ, if you're considering him, is about cleaning yourself up, I'm here to tell you that you are trying to clean yourself up with filthy rags. You are even in more danger of damning yourself by you trying to thrust yourself upon and above the goodness of God. Trust and rest in his goodness. So I pray that you would cry out, cry out for his mercy and repent and believe. Trust in Christ, not in your filthy rags. Repent and believe. Believer, I pray that you would fear the Lord. Ask for his grace to obey that you would have that fear of the Lord that you would let down or grieve such a tender apparent. It's why we seek obedience, because we have a good Savior. I pray that you would seek Christ to read Scripture. I pray that that would be the nourishment for your soul. I pray that you would cry out in prayer often. As Paul encouraged the church at Thessalonica, is to pray without ceasing. I pray that your prayers would be sweet that you would be constantly going to your Father, even in subtle, under your breath prayers and conversations, praying for gospel conversations as you seek to advance the gospel. And I pray that you would wait. I pray that you would meditate on his promises, that he is a good Father, that he does not abandon you, does not cast you off. And I pray that when we ask this question, whom shall I fear? Oh, may you fear the Lord, all you children of God. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are so set apart and you are so holy. But even though you are, you promise that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. 
So God, I pray for your children in this room. If, you, if they are feeling like you are far off and distant, that they would remember your word, that you're never further than an arm lengths away, that they would remember that your spirit dwells in us, that they would remember your goodness, that they would remember you were always there, that they would fear not, for you are the Lord their God. For any soul in this room that may have never feared you rightfully, I pray you would chase them down. I pray that you would save their soul. I pray that they would lay awake at night wrestling with your goodness and your grace and your holiness. God, we're grateful for this fellowship. We're grateful for your word, how it encourages and equips, how at times it pokes and prods and other times it cuts deep. Grateful that you have an encouraging word for every one of your flock in this room this morning. Lord, we love you, but thank you for first loving us. It's in your name we pray.